Hey there, are you ready to take a dive into an organization that is involved in several areas of the world? Well, so am I. So let's get right into it. And welcome back to another episode of Mission Talk, where we talk everything missions from across the street to around the world. And now I'm so excited for our uh, guest today. I have joining with me from Lifeline Christian Mission. I have Keith and Christy Dimbath. Keith and Christy, thank you for jumping on with me today. Thanks for having us. Looking forward to it. Uh, I was I was excited, Keith. Um, and when I talked to you the other day on the phone, I started thinking, I'm like, um, this platform is largely growing pretty rapidly, which we are excited about. Um, so I'm excited to get to introduce people to you. But I have known you for about roughly six years now, and it doesn't feel so much like an interview as more of a family reunion. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, we've traveled the world together, and so we've been through a lot. And I am excited for people to hear some of the stories, hear about what your organization does and how you two play a big role in that. Um, so, Keith and Christy, before we dive right into um, the lifeline side of things, can you just tell us a little bit about your family? Oh, sure. We could spend the whole time talking about our family. Um, Christy and I have been married 44 years, right? Got that right. We've been married 44 years. Uh, we have two kids, our daughter, Jennifer, and our son, Brian, which some people in Wilmington might remember them. And uh, they're both married, have their own families. We have seven grandchildren. And uh, we enjoy this phase of our lives very, very much with our grandkids and just having a really good time with it. So we enjoy our family. After Wilmington, you spent some time in Wilmington, you moved to Columbus, now you're around Indiana, so you can be closer with them. And so are you enjoying life as grandparents that live closer? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I, yes, absolutely. I would agree. <laughs> it's been, it, instead of an all day long weekend, we can trip and a long day weekend, we can just do it in a day. And it's, it's been great. It's We're been available good. for soccer games and basketball games and school yeah. events. So that's nice. So you two have been married 44 years. I, I I didn't even think it was that long. So um, congratulations. How, how did you two meet? I don't think I've ever heard the story of how you two met. You can tell it's the story. Nice story. <laughs> it's, it's, it's great. You'll love it. <laughs> Actually, uh, we met at what was then called Cincinnati Bible College. Uh, we were both students there. And um, uh, the very first time I met Keith, uh, I had two black eyes. I played on the girls' basketball team, and I'd taken an elbow to the nose, so I was very lovely. And um, his first words to me uh, were something like, what happened to you? And, you know, Jacob, right then, I knew that he was the one. I mean, just such sensitivity and uh, compassion that I knew that that was the man that I wanted to marry. And actually, I thought he was kind of a loser. <laughs> And she's not kidding when she says that. <laughs> but but he people change, and he is very sensitive now. And and you you know I figured nobody's probably ever used that as an opening line, so I thought why not? You know, look, you know, turned out okay. <laughs> and let the record show on here, it works. Yeah, it works. Yeah. <laughs> it, it does. It does. It does. So how how long after that were you two married? Oh my, it was couple of years. couple of years probably. Yeah. That would have been in 1976 that we really met. So it, it was almost two years after that we got married. So uh, you both were at Cincinnati Christian University. What, what were you both studying there? Well, I was majoring in ministry. And what were you? I mainly was just going to go there for a year or two to get some uh, Bible classes because I didn't grow up in the church and I didn't really know anything about the Bible. So I wanted to learn. I didn't realize that you shouldn't go in and just take a boatload of Bible classes all in the same time because that was uh, a little rough, but uh, that was mainly why I was going. And then I ended up with, of course, with my MRS degree. Can you tell us a little bit about how you felt the call into ministry? Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I've thought I've been thinking about this question. Um, I, I can't really point to one thing in one moment where I could say, yep, yeah, that was definitely it. That's when I got called into the ministry. But I, I think the way it started was when I was in high school, um, I mean, I still went to church and all that, but it wasn't as big a part of my life. I mean, it was for my family, it was, but for me, you know, as a teenager, I, you know, I'm like, eh, it's okay. But 
there's other things had my attention too. But I remember um, the summer before I started college, I was helping out on staff at Butler Springs and um, the minister at my home church at that time was there. And I don't know, he and I just started having some conversations that week and really kind of helped me see some things in a better way and, and so forth. And I had not even planned to go to Bible college, but after those conversations and after that week and, you know, talking through it with some other people, my parents and all that, you know, I, that's when I decided to go to, to Cincinnati. And so I think that was kind of the thing that kind of started steering me toward that. And then I just had the opportunity, you know, while I was in school to do some thing, try out in some traveling groups with the school and that type of thing, where I had the opportunity to do some speaking and that type of thing. And so I, I think it was just kind of a big picture, gradual thing that the more I got into that, the more I realized I liked that. And um, so, I, you know, God just worked through, I think, a variety of different people and different situations that led me to that point. Did you end up here in Wilmington right after college or were you somewhere else first? No, we we went to uh, my first full time ministry was in Heath, Ohio, which is a community east of Columbus. And we were there, I think, about two years and then came to Wilmington. Can you tell us a little bit about your uh, time in Wilmington, which is hard to do because you were here for about 30 years, correct? <laughs> uh, yeah, it was just shy 29, about 29 and a half years that we were we were there. And, you know, I think we look back on that experience at Wilmington with with a lot of happiness, a lot of joy. We I mean, obviously, we were there a long time and the roots grew deep. And um, our daughter was 15 months old when we moved to Wilmington. Uh, our son was born a few months after we moved to Wilmington. So really, for both of them growing up, that's the only home they ever knew, went to the same schools and all of that. And as far as you know, as far as the church is concerned, um, you know, we we just have, still have a lot of good friends there in the church and in the community and a lot of great memories. Um, you know, I I was also thinking about this question. I thought, man, there's a lot of good things I can say. And I know we don't have a whole lot of time. But I think one of the neatest things that one of the neatest memories that I have was, of course, I know the floors in the ministry center have been redone. And I think all everything that was on the floor is gone because at the time we put carpet down. But one of the neatest things, neatest memories I had was the night we went out there before that building was finished on a Sunday evening, had a big crowd of people there, set everybody loose with um, Sharpies and whatnot, and just wrote out all these scripture verses and everything on the floor. And um, I still remember that night just, just because it was a neat thing for people to come together um, in that building as we were building it and so forth. And um, of course, I think the, the two highlight big highlights for us was both of our kids were baptized there. Uh, our daughter was married there. And uh, so, you know, just a lot of, a lot of good memories and great people there. And uh, uh, we, I think probably, I mean, we both have home churches and our home communities, but we were at Wilmington far longer than we were at either one of those churches. So I think in some ways we think maybe of Wilmington more as our home church in a way, just because we were there for so long, would you say so? Yeah. Yeah. And of course, you still have ties to the Wilmington Church because um, they support Lifeline Mission. Right. And uh, mm -hmm. so you still have those ties. Christy, do you have any uh, memories that stick out in your head of Wilmington? Like, like I said, 29 years, that's a lot of memories. <laughs> Try to just pick one or two. But well, um, I, to be honest, I think that's just where I, I I grew up physically, but I think I grew up spiritually uh, as well. And I think um, probably some of my, um, I hate to say favorite, but the highlights of that is just uh, being parts of some small groups of women and uh, really getting close to some of those uh, ladies and sharing life together with them, you know, as our, our children grew up and just the different phases that you go through as a mom. Uh, so I think just spending time with, uh, with those ladies uh, was probably um, one of the most positive things for me. At what point did God start transitioning you from a senior minister role here into um, into the ministry of Lifeline? Well, um, actually, I don't know. I, I lose track of time, but um, there was a period of time, you know, the church, uh, there was a group of, of high school kids that went to um, Haiti and our kids were among that group that went to Haiti to Lifeline for a trip. I'd never been to Haiti. I'd never heard of Lifeline. didn't know anything about it, but um, 
I went, the youth minister at the church at that time asked both of us to go. Well, we felt like financially that wasn't feasible. So I went. And then the next year, Christy went and our kids went back. And then, you know, for a little bit of time there on a kind of a regular basis, we were taking groups down. But I think so that's kind of what got us in the door with Lifeline and learning a little more about it. And then, um, and again, I can't remember the time frame exactly, but there was a time there for a couple of years that we would go down and we would serve as volunteer team leaders. And um, the church and the leadership was kind enough to allow us to, to go down to two teams back to back and that type of thing. And we did that for a while. And we really, really enjoyed that. And we're getting to know more about Lifeline. And then um, I do remember one time Christy asking me if I'd ever want to do that full time. And at that time, I said, well, no, I, I think I'm doing what God's called me to do. And, you know, kind of left it at that. But then a couple of years. I thought we might do that like after we retired. Yeah, right, right. But, you know, not right, not right now. But then uh, and, and Jacob, it, it, it was kind of interesting because um, I was, you know, I was feeling I mean, I was happy at Wilmington. but I was feeling like, well, maybe, is there something else God wants us to do? We just kind of get kept getting that sense. And one day out of the blue, just totally out of the blue, I said to Christy, do you think there's a place for us at Lifeline? And so we started talking about that and praying about that. One thing led to another. We contacted Lifeline. We didn't know if they were even looking for people, but as it turns out, they said, oh, this is an answer to prayer because we need help in this area. And so it was one, it, and this all happened over the course of you know a couple of years. It wasn't like all of a sudden, it was a very gradual thing, but I, you know, I don't know. Um, and oftentimes now I, people say, Oh, so I hear you've retired and you're doing this now. And I'm like, well, no, I'm not retired by a long shot. But um, so, yeah, so that's kind of what happened and, and how it came about. And, um, and, and the only other thing I'll say about that is uh, it was, it was bittersweet for us because as we've already mentioned, we were at Wilmington for a very long time. So from that side of it, it was that was hard um, to make that change and and because and changing communities and all that. But on the other side of that coin, even with all of those emotions, we still felt this incredible sense of peace that this is what God is calling us to. And um, so now we've been here with Lifeline. Um, we're in our twelfth year um, with Lifeline, so it, it doesn't seem like it's been that long. But um, uh, so you know, that's kind of how it all came together. So there's probably a lot of people watching that don't even know um, what Lifeline is. So can you just give us a little bit about the mission and the history of Lifeline? Well, yeah, um, Lifeline Christian Mission, um, our our ministry and our focus basically is is built around one statement, and that is to spark lives on mission for God, every everybody, everywhere. And, and I think one of the big things with Lifeline is uh, obviously on all the fields where we serve, you know, our, our goal is for people to come to Christ, to minister to needs and, and all of that. But also along with that is getting people involved. And Jacob, you've experienced this being on mission trips with us and so forth, of getting people involved in, in a personal way in, in missions. And in a very real sense, everything we do is lifeline, as Lifeline, uh, really, without a lot of people and a lot of churches coming alongside us and getting involved personally, a lot of what we do wouldn't happen. So we're, we're grateful for that. But, you know, as, as far as, as far as our focus of ministry with Lifeline, it, it's, it's really kind of built on what we call five causes for Lifeline. One being the local church. Uh, and by local church, I mean, churches on the field. I mean, every place where we serve, we have a local church and that's real. The local church really on the field is what really drives everything else that we do as far as ministry and so forth. Um, another cause that we focus on is youth. And um, again, Jacob, you've seen this on the field with us that um, there's a lot of emphasis placed on, on youth through the Christian schools that we have, um, through the leadership development that we do with young people, uh, through their youth groups and so forth in, in the church. And um, a, a lot of emphasis is placed on youth because um, that's where future leadership comes from. And we, we see that being played out over and over again. Health and nutrition is a big cause that we focus on. Uh, there's a focus on it somewhat everywhere we are, but really Haiti and Honduras is part of that main focus because that's where we have medical clinics. And um, a lot of what we do in that ministry in, in, in health and nutrition is not just treating things when people come in, they've gotten sick, they have this, they have that, but also working with them. Um, what's the best way to put it? 
preventive for on preventive care um, to um, you know to stay healthy to you know to prevent a lot of the things obviously that that they come in with many of them are easily treatable here in the U.S. So trying to help people to understand that not only through their healthcare but also through uh, nutrition. Uh, economic empowerment is something that uh, actually it, it's something that we have just recently gotten into. But um, the, you know, the idea with economic empowerment is equipping people uh, to understand that while maybe you know we look at it and, and they are, and they're in situations where it's very poor living conditions, and yet there there are resources available to them that can help sustain them, can help them grow for the future, and so forth. And so, um, you know, we, we come alongside with that and uh, we, we're seeing a lot of things begin to happen in this area and it's exciting to see. And then the final cause, the fifth one is mobilization. And that's really kind of the focus of where Christy and I uh, are in, in our ministry with Lifeline and that's getting people mobilized. And there's a few ways we do that. The, the, the thing that we're tied clo- most closely to our mission trips, which, which um, really aren't happening right now because of situations with COVID and other countries and whatnot. But that is kind of our main focus of getting people on the mission field, um, getting them involved in missions, helping them to see what it's like to come alongside our, our leadership on the field and work side by side with them in helping them to meet needs and, and do ministry and, and so forth. Uh, meal packing events um, are big things with Lifeline as well. People get involved with those, and we're seeing a huge growth with that. I mean, literally across the country uh, with Lifeline uh, meal packing events, and, and we have thousands of people that are involved with that every single year. So those are two big things, but there, there's many others as well. So, you know, those five things are really kind of our focus. And you also asked about the history. I'll speak to that just real quickly. Lifeline uh, was founded in 1980. And Lifeline started in Haiti by and Bob and Gretchen DeVoe are the founders of Lifeline. Um, they um, uh, they are still with Lifeline. They are uh, in, a, in a role now where they're doing a lot of things with church relations and so forth. But um, I think a lot of times when people that know Lifeline, they think of Lifeline immediately think of Haiti. But and that's where we started. But that's now that is not the only place we are. And God's blessed uh, opening doors of opportunity over the years. All right. So, Keith, you mentioned just briefly that um, you and Christy are mainly devolved in the mobilization side of it. Um, can you speak just briefly about what your roles are um, in Lifeline? Um, well, as Keith said, our, uh, our main role would be missionary development, um, which is overseeing the uh, mission teams in every country that uh, Lifeline takes teams. Uh, we, um, you know, every aspect of that, we also... Uh, train uh, couples as volunteers to come in and to help lead those teams as well. I mean, obviously, we can't be everywhere uh, for every team. Uh, so that's probably the, our main role would be um, just anything that has to do with mission teams. Uh, what, what was the hardest part about adjusting to life as team leaders, being in different countries? Um, when you first t- took these roles, um, it, it helped that you have already been on several trips, but what was the hardest part about now being in charge over there in different countries? Um, well, that was probably the biggest thing is just being in charge. <laughs> um, I guess um, the hardest part becoming team leaders, I guess I think of, of two things. One is this side of things in the U.S., and it was just logistics. Uh, for us, just getting, you know, our, our travel schedule is so sporadic that just getting things set up, you know, getting our bills paid online and, um, you know, even things like learning how to buy groceries different because we would be here for a few weeks and we'd be gone for several weeks. And so like our food would spoil. So we'd have to figure out you know, a new way of doing just common things. Um, the other would be... Um, I think just adjusting to the different cultures, uh, not, you know, wanting to be careful that we didn't do some, you know, thing that we wouldn't even think about that might be offensive uh, to people there. And then, um, you know, with the teams that come in, just uh, so many different personalities, but trying to help them um, understand culture as best we can in that short window of time. Um, But I, I think that'd probably be the two. I mean, obviously just learning how to lead teams was 
you know, a, an issue in and of itself. Just at the beginning, we had no clue, really. And, uh, and every time we think we have it figured out, then it changes. But And that's still true today. I mean, like I said, we're in our 12th year and, you know, things change all the time. And sometimes it's be from one trip to the, literally from one trip to the next. And so, um, yeah, it's been I, I do recall real early on. And I think we were still doing this as volunteers. I'll never forget this. And I joke with Bob and Gretchen DeVoe about this all the time. We were down in Haiti in Grand Guave at our main campus leading a team. And we have another campus at Montier over toward Port-au-Prince. And at that time, our children's home was there. And so we're, there's a group of teenagers there. They were splitting their time between Grand Guave and Montier. So we, Bob and Gretchen said, now um, you'll have a translator and the administrator speaks English. Well, we got over there and the translator, I don't know where they ended up, but they, to this day, they've never shown up. And the administrator spoke. Yes and no. Yes and no English. And so <laughs> here we were. And uh, I, I, I joke about, I still joke with Bob and Gretchen about this to this day, but I really think, you know, in some ways that was good for us because we were just kind of thrown into it and you know, sometimes you that's you just kind of go by the seat of your pants because situations are what they are. And it was we'd never been to this place. We, you know, all this. But I think those those things helped us grow in, in those inner roles. I think, too, as we mentioned, like the constant change, I think for me personally, you know, I'm one I like my spreadsheet to like order, you know, a certain thing and order in the mission field don't go together. And so I was so proud of myself. I had plan A, but I also had plan B. What I didn't realize that you needed E and F and G, you know, before the team even got there. So that was a big adjustment for me personally. It's just learning to be more flexible. So uh, you mentioned that your first trips was to Haiti, but um, Lifeline is involved in so many other parts of the world. Can you tell us about all the locations Lifeline is involved with? Yeah, we're, Lifeline is involved in nine places in the world. Of course, we've already mentioned Haiti. The others are Honduras, Guatemala, uh, Cuba, Ecuador, Panama, Canada, El Salvador, and Arizona. And, uh, you know, I mentioned, you know, a lot of times people associate Lifeline with Haiti, but it's been, it's been amazing over these many years how God has opened doors of opportunities for us uh, to enter into different other fields uh, and there, you know, we don't have time to go into it today. There's all kind of interesting stories about how some of these came about and how Lifeline got connected and and all of these things. But the bottom line is, you know, God's opened the doors. And um, so uh, people often ask us, have we been to every one of those places? And we've been to most of them. We've not been to Panama yet. I think we've been everywhere else. Yeah. Well, we've not been to Canada. Uh, we've not been to Canada or Panama, but we have been to all of the other locations. So it's been it's interesting to see the different places and the different ministries that the Light, Light, Lifeline has in all these places. I've been on several of your trips, and each time I've uh, gone, I've taken someone new with me. I've convinced someone new to go. And the question they're always asking me is, you know, they want all the details of what it's going to be like so they can mentally prepare. And that's something I'm very adamant about. I don't want to give anything away. Because everyone experiences trips like these in a different way. So if I explain my side of it, it's it's gonna that's what they're going going to expect. When God has a different um, when God has different experience set aside for them. So without giving too much away about for anyone who is interested in going on one year trip someday, what can we tell them that um, just give them a little snippet of what they would be experiencing? Well, I think. Um... Just generally speaking, it would just be um, coming and, and ministering alongside our national staff. Hmm. Whatever God is doing there, we come alongside and join them. You know, whether it's, you know, attending church services, participating in some of these, like we mentioned, nutrition programs or um, praying in the communities with the people. Uh, but it's just coming alongside and joining what God is doing uh, at that location at that time. And because that changes. Well, you know, teams might do similar things when they come. It it still changes. As you say, you, you kind of have a different experience each time right. you go. And, and Jacob, the one thing I would add to that is um, we have conversations with our field staff or field administrators before teams come. Uh, and 
the the focus of that conversation is with these teams coming, what ministries, what things do you see that would be of help to you to have the teams involved with? We don't take the philosophy of, hey, we're coming in, doing our thing, and here it is. Mm. Um, we want we want their input into uh, into this. So because of that, even sometimes on the same fields, there might be some things that are different from one team to another, because some of that's going to depend on what the need is at the time that the team is coming. Um, and you said that you are involved with talking with the staff about what to expect. That's something I've always loved about um, the work Lifeline does is training up nas- uh, national staff. Um, it's not Lifeline staff from the states that is being sent over. It's training up locals there, people that know the community, know the people, know its needs. And that's something I've always seen. We have uh, three young men and um, actually four in Haiti who came. I first met them as young high school uh, students who came and just worked as translators for us when we had teams in. And, um, you know, that was their main job. And then, you know, gradually they kind of took on some other responsibilities. Today, uh, these uh, three of these men, Huguenot, Samuel, and Lionel, are um, part of our administrative team in Haiti. They work as assistants to our regional directors. Uh, They are given training. They're constantly, you know, giving uh, training on how to lead and, and things to help them through that. But they have really developed into um, really good, yeah, strong have. leaders. Yeah. I mean, it's it's difficult being that young in, in that culture, you know, to be over people, but they've handled it with grace. Um, another young man who started uh, as a translator as well, he went to college and he uh, became a dentist. And now he works at our one of our clinics there in Haiti mm-hmm. as a dentist. And we have several um, young men and women who grew up in our schools in Haiti, Honduras, who um, graduated you know, from our schools and now have come back to work uh, for Lifeline as nurses, as doctors, as dentists, as um, uh, in our, uh, our shop out there that uh, where they you know, uh, build things out there in our shop and work on our vehicles, uh, just throughout our whole, all of our campuses, uh, teachers and our schools, administrators. So that's... Um, that always uh, blesses me to see kids who you know grew up in our school to come back and now to give back. Uh, Christy mentioned Samuel, and uh, mm-hmm. the the one thing that I've noticed with these these guys that she mentioned and other leaders as well. And Jacob, you said it very well: the connection with Lifeline, with the church, with community, and so forth. And they also have that that same feeling toward the teams. I will never forget. Uh, when I was down there with a the team and we were stuck down there when Hurricane Matthew came through and we were in the main building just sort of waiting things out. And it was right after breakfast and I looked up and, and the do- coming through the door was Samuel, mm. d- literally drenched to the, yes. to the skin. I thought, I, and I knew he walked and I thought, I don't even know how he got, I don't even know how he walked through this. And I said, I would always say, Samuel, what are you doing here? <laughs> he said, I just was concerned about the team and wanted to come over and make sure everybody was okay. And um, I said, well, why don't you have some breakfast with us? And all they said, no, I, I just wanted to check. You, is everybody okay? I've never, I'll never forget mm-hmm. that. I'll never forget that. And that just speaks, I think, to the quality of the leadership that they show. We, you had mentioned the Lifeline schools. Can you tell us a little bit more about Lifeline schools in these places? Because um, I've had a chance to tour a few of these now. And I've noticed, I've seen some of the schools that are in these communities that aren't connected or affiliated with Lifeline. And there is just even a difference between these schools, between a Lifeline school or a school from the public. There's just a different different atmosphere. Can you just tell us a little bit more about these, uh, the mission of these schools? Well, um, our, our schools, obviously, they are Christian schools. So the children receive, you know, a classical education as well as a Christian education. And uh, by design, um, our schools are, <clears throat> excuse me, are located in areas where, um, the people are underserved. Um, and um, we do uh, ask that the parents um, have a part in, in having their children in school. There is a, a small uh, registration fee, you know, that the, that the parents have to pay. Um, it's very minimal. And because um, of where these schools are located, we, we intentionally make that what we would consider a token 
amount. But for some of these parents, it's it's quite a bit for them, but it gives them a sense of ownership in their children's education and, and maybe even a, a bit of pride in being able to provide for the children's education. While it doesn't really cover, in reality, doesn't cover much of anything, it still gives them a sense of ownership in their children's education. So that's one thing I've, I've always appreciated is just letting the, still again, partnering with the parents to educate their children. And that goes with all of our schools are in these marginal communities where um, a lot of these children would not go to school, um, you know, otherwise. Keith, in one of your emails you sent me um, yesterday, you had mentioned a new program that um, Lifeline has started called the uh, Together Program. Yeah. Can you give us a little detail of uh, what that new program is about? We'd be happy to. Uh, and, and our Together Program that you're mentioning, it is tied in directly with our schools. And uh, as you say, it's new. It's been well received and getting off the ground and so on. And basically what it boils down to with Together is the opportunity for people to partner with a class in one of our schools. And one of the ways that we accomplish that is by inviting churches uh, to have a Together drive. Maybe several people in a congregation will want to sign up and be to be Together partners with for example, a third grade class at the Grand Guave School in Haiti. And um, uh, by be, by doing that and, and their donations that they make for that, um, it it also kind of fills some of the gap that Christy is talking about, you know, from between what parents pay and, and what other expenses are. And, and it not only benefits the, the class that they are partnering with, but it also benefits the entire the entire school. So the more together partners we have, um, the more we're able to bless and meet those needs. Uh, with the kids in the school, because it's not only school supplies, but they get a meal, they get health care, those kind of things. And so, um, yeah, it's it's a it's it's an exciting program. I, I just met with a church earlier this week, a, a missions team at their church, and I think they're excited about getting together <laughs> with us uh, to uh, partner with a class. And 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 I think one of the unique things about this is um, <clears throat> when together partners partner with a class, and if they want to continue on. Um, uh, through through as long as they want to continue with that class, that, that you could literally go from, you know, if you started out with a kindergarten class all the way through to when that class graduates and have those connections with that particular class. Everybody gets updates about what's going on in the classroom, pictures, information about the teachers, prayer needs, those types of things. And and one thing, and we can't we can't promise this with every team because sometimes it comes down to timing and where they are, but. You know, it might even be possible at times to connect with the class when they're on the field for a trip. So in a nutshell, that's it. And just I'll just get a little plug in here. If there's people watching that are interested in that, go to our website, lifeline.org. Go to the Together webpage. There's all kind of information there. And we're happy to talk with people about that and get them connected with that. Absolutely. And and on that note, I like um, let's go over a few of the other areas um, and the programs Lifeline has. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, nutrition program, which was always a fun blast to be a part of every time I was there. So can you tell us a little bit about the nutrition program? Yeah, um, the only country we have a, a formal nutrition program as such is Haiti. Um, we have, of course, all of our all of our school children, all of our schools, uh, they get a hot meal. Uh, the meal that we provide them is uh, we call meal packs. Uh, I think Wilmington Church uh, did a meal pack. It's a rice soy based um, uh, product. And each um, meal contains like over 70 percent of the daily nutrients needed. Uh, so the kids love that. They even have a special name for it. They call it T-Panic. It's it's uh, their little meal. And that's the word that they created for that. So the school kids get that. We have. Um, Programs and it's it's for the the most at risk babies and children uh, there in the community. They don't have to be in our school to be in this program. It's just at risk uh, children, and they come once a week. Uh, the the babies are weighed and you know kind of assessed weekly to make sure they're growing as they should. The children just come, um, and um, you know they get uh, sometimes they get teaching. It might be about you know taking care of their children or different hygiene things or health things, um, that sort of thing, and they get. Um, they get just a supplement. The, the food isn't meant to last them all week. It's just to help them get through another week. And they take the food home and prepare it so the whole bit, uh, family benefits from the, 
the nutrition there. In our other uh, fields, uh, while there's not a formal nutrition program, it's not uncommon for uh, some of our pastors or our uh, school teachers or administrators to just either go buy food or possibly, you know, with money out of their own pocket and take it to uh, a family in need. As a matter of fact, um, that's how one of our churches in Honduras just recently started. It was a group of um, basically squatters in an area. And one of our pastors, um, he just made his way up there, uh, was up on a mountain, and he he started taking food. He would just buy food on his own. He'd take several bags of food to the people there. And uh, he fed them physically. And through that opportunity, he was able to then begin feeding them spiritually. And they have officially uh, begun a church. They built a little shelter. Uh, it's a pretty rustic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, they are meeting on a regular basis now. And so while we don't have formal nutrition, that food has um, opened a way uh, to speak, to feed them in more ways than one. I'm not sure if you have these in every Lifeline location, but um, I definitely in Haiti, you have the house building program. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's still going on. And basically, um, we have a ministry there uh, where we um, identify families and so forth that are in need of a, of a safe, uh, dry place uh, to, to live. And there are uh, we have a team in Haiti that, you know, they determine whether they qualify for a home and whatnot. And they have to have the land and some other things together to be able to, to do that. And uh, then we have you know, Mason crews, then that will build these homes and uh, people in the United States, some of them have been on trips with us, some of them have not, but, you know, they they have the opportunity to provide the funds uh, to make that home uh, possible. And uh, if they're on the field with us, we will do a little house dedication. Well, they do the house dedications anyway, but if the team's on the field, we're able to attend the house dedications and so forth. And that, and that's been going on since 2003. And um, it has slowed down, uh, some because of the political unrest in Haiti and whatnot, but there, there are homes that are still being built uh, even when we are not able to go. And so that, that ministry uh, is uh, continuing on at, at, as of right now. Can I and, add uh, something to that? It's kind of expanded while we don't build help, uh, homes in other countries. It has expanded into, um, for example, in Honduras, uh, the need might be uh, a family has a home, but they need a new floor because they have a dirt floor. So we might go in and pour a floor in there. If someone wanted to provide the funds for that, that's something that we could do there. So, uh, and we do that same type of thing, you know, in the other locations as well. And it's awesome that churches can raise funds or um, just people themselves can raise funds to build these houses. It's roughly what, $6,000 to build a house. Is that, um, am I correct on that, Keith? Uh, that's a little high. It's, it's, I think around $4,700. Around I 40. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cause the last time I was in Haiti, um, we had raised money to build this young man a house and we got to actually be the team that goes in and build this house. I'll never, I'll never forget that one, Keith, because the house we built this on was on top of a mountain and it was quite interesting. We don't have time to go into all the stories, but quite interesting trying to get the trucks and materials to the top of this. Yeah. I remember. (laughs) Look at that site before you came. I asked our crew. I said, "You're sure we can get trucks up here?" Oh yeah, yeah, we can get them up there, and they did. But it was oh my goodness, just barely. I kid you not. There was a few times I thought our trucks were going to slide off. (laughs) I kid you not. It was it was pretty steep, but uh, definitely rewarding and a great view from up there. Oh yeah. So um, I would say, just from my perspective, that um, in each community, Lifeline is involved in. What I would say would be the backbone of Lifeline there is the churches. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us how churches get planted in these communities? What are some of the steps that are taken to build these churches in the communities? Well, you know, that can happen a multitude of different ways. Um, sometimes it's a thing where we, and by I mean like staff on this end, we'll have conversations, you know, down there and so forth and determine some areas. But one of the neat things is that uh, how some of these churches come about is the local churches on the fields themselves. Um, they see the need in a community or whatever, and you know they've kind of taken the initiative to to start some of these churches as well. So it's kind of a combined effort, I guess, is the best way to put it. But um, 
yeah, a, a lot of that is driven by the local churches on the field. And of course, they, I mean, we have conversations with them on this end and so forth, but, but really they're the ones that are saying, Hey, here's a need. And, and, um, you know, feel that this is a good area for a church. And so that's how many of them have come about. It's safe to say over the past 12 years, you're, um, you've had quite a few adventures <laughs> in the field, <laughs> but, um, you would probably agree. You both have had some very particular ones. And Christy, I'm thinking back to 11 years ago, which is hard to believe. Um, everyone will remember the seven, uh, was it, was it a 7.0 magnitude earthquake that took place in Haiti and Christy, you were there at the time and Keith, you were back here. That that's correct. Right. Right. Christy, can you tell us from your perspective, um, just, uh, remembering back to that story, can you tell us anything about that experience? Do you have like three or four hours? <laughs> uh. <laughs> um, yeah, um, to be honest, the, the event itself, the actual earthquake, I think uh, the word that keeps coming to my mind is just surreal. Um, it was just very difficult to even process. You know, the the ground shouldn't roll. You know, I shouldn't fly across the, the bedroom. It was just surreal. It was just hard to really process. And I think, I don't think I really fully processed that for several weeks. You know, we had very limited access to uh, news or anything like that. And so I didn't really even grasp the scope of what had happened until I returned home. Um, I think um, probably, uh, you know, we had a, a group of women there. It was the, the annual women's trip. So we had 58 women there at the time. And I do remember just very shortly after uh, the earthquake, Quake took place. Of course, there was, you know, many um, aftershocks after that. So it just kept happening over and over. But people just started trickling into our campus. And we had literally thousands of people just sitting in our yard there. Uh, people who some came with literally just the clothes on their back. Um, they were separated from family members. Some were injured. Just a variety of needs. And so our ladies just went immediately and just tried to meet those immediate needs. And we could give them clothes. We could do you know, take care of them, uh, some of their their injuries, uh, things like that, just doing what we could do. But I think the thing that just stands out the most is we began calling them God moments, was just seeing the different ways that God worked in that situation. Of course, we were all in different places when it happened. We were all um, in different uh, types of ministry afterwards. And so we experienced different things, uh, but we would share those you know, with each other. Uh, actually, one of the women started collecting those and she made a little booklet of God moments. And then uh, in the years since, I've even learned of other things. As I talked to women, they had to remember something that happened and just seeing uh, God at work. And, and it made me realize, you know, God wasn't surprised by that event. We were, but God wasn't. And, and through it all, he was still in control. And uh, just so many of those, I mean, it, it, for hours, I could share just those God moments. Uh, just how he, I mean, he's always at work, but just to see him work in that, uh, that catastrophic event. I remember some, running into somebody and then telling me, oh, I heard there was an earthquake in Haiti. That was in the evening. And I'm like, oh, I hadn't heard about that, which I didn't think a whole lot about that because I thought, well, you know, here on news all the time, it could be mm -hmm. clear on the other side of the island. I wasn't real until I, I got to a friend's home that evening and they had the news on and I realized, oh, this is a big deal. This is much bigger than I thought. And, um, and of course, then phone calls started coming, you know, from, you know, our leadership staff here in the U.S. of what's going on and trying to figure out what's going on. And um, finally, uh, they had a, would you have a satellite phone, was it? I don't remember. No, what we just got one cell phone call off. That's all we did. And everything just dropped. Out. I mean, yeah. just like immediately after we just got one call off. And wow. so that message was passed along that, hey, we got this phone call you know, there's a lot of damage, but everybody is okay. So that sort of helped me to know, okay, she's okay. Mm -hmm. And then of course the internet was down and all of that, but they finally did get that couple back together enough to do some emails. So then I started getting a few emails from her. Of course, she's saying things like, I can't believe what I'm seeing. I've never been through anything like this before. And, you know, it's just, you know, one thing after another, but so I obviously was very concerned, but at the same time, kind of had a sense of peace and knowing they're okay. And um, the, a big focus then in the days following, you know, for us here on this end was just 
literally figuring out how are we going to get these ladies home? Because we knew the airport, the Port of Prince Airport was closed. We knew all these things were happening and we looked at everything. I mean, and I mean everything, boats, whatever, to try to get them out. And, you know, finally did and got them back to Florida. They got to Homestead Air Force Base and they got back home. So, you know, from this perspective, a lot of the focus began to be on how are we going to have two things? How are we going to get these ladies home? What are we going to do to minister to the needs of people, you know, that are there? And I just prayed every night, you know, for Christy, I'd read her emails and, you know, I, I just, at this, at that point, I just had no choice but to say, you know, God, I trust you. I'm hearing from her. I know she's okay. I know how she handles situations like this, how she is resourceful and thinks things through. So that, that was a comfort for, for me on this end, but it was, it was an interesting time to say the least. And you said um, you were th- already thinking through of how can Lifeline minister to these people? What's some of the ways that they ended up doing that? Um, of course, I, I know from Chrissy's perspective, you were already ministering there even after, right after the earthquake, but um, what are some other ways Lifeline contributed? Well, yeah, I can start. You might, Christy might have something she wants to add too. I, I think, you know, one of the things we started working on as quickly as we could, we knew that there were going to be things that, you know, things needed repaired, those kind of things. And so we were able to identify some people to get down there, not regular teams, but people to get down there to start basically working on just getting some things put back together. Um, you know, that, that type of thing. I think, if I, it's been a while, but I think one of the other things that we started to focus on was getting food down there because we knew that was going to be a big need and so on. Um, the did. military came in and they kind of used our campus as, you know, they, as kind of a base uh, for some things. And so with their help, we built, I don't know how many, a whole slew of these two family hoop tents uh, back on the, in a big field on our property. Cause a lot of these, I mean, these people, had lost their homes. And so these families could move into there. We had uh, arranged for water to come in. So they would have drinking water. As she mentioned, the food, you know, you had to think of outhouses. We, we partnered with other missions. I think like Oxfam came in with uh, and helped do like showers and, and restrooms. Um, USA brought, you know, would provide like big bags of food and oil. And they would distribute up from our campus. So there was, you know, just those basic needs and I will say, it 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 the from the not the first night, but the the next you know twenty four hours later, uh, the Haitians started having worship services right there on the campus. They had you know they'd be singing and and praising and and that sort of thing right there. So the church was still there. It was damaged, but it was still active right there. So I think just meeting basic needs physically and spiritually. Now we we can flip the script a little bit here and um, uh, fast forward to 2016, which was my first trip with Lifeline, and that will be a unforgettable one. Um, so thanks a lot for that, guys. <laughs> uh, Hurricane Matthew hit. Uh, Keith Keith was there on this trip, and um, Christy, you were here back in the states. Keith, can you tell us your perspective uh, on that story? Yeah. Well, first of all, Jacob, I want to say there was no additional charge for that hurricane. That was part oh, of the okay. coming. So <laughs> just want to everybody to know. Yeah, that was yeah, that was an interesting experience. Obviously, I'd never been through a hurricane. I'd you know seen things on television and whatnot about it, but never really experienced it firsthand. And you know, I guess as I've been thinking about this, just a couple of things and a couple of them, a couple of thoughts that come to mind that are actually prior to the actually to the arrival of the hurricane, because I remember. Um, and it, actually the team had not been there very long and mm. started, we, as a rule, you know, we, it, it, we'll check, you know, the weather forecast and all that and national hurricane center and all whatnot, when we've got teams around. And, um, I remember looking at that and seeing this hurricane and they named it Matthew and the direction it was moving. And at first it was looking like it was just going to brush by the Island, not be a big deal. The next night I would look and oh, some of the coast nows, not not including where we were yet, but some of the coastlines, it was a hurricane advisory. And I'll, I remember the next night I looked and the entire island is surrounded and the whole island under is under a hurricane warning. And I thought, oh, my, this is going to be interesting. And so immediately 
you know, we started talking to the team about this and um, what's going to happen. And, 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 you know, everybody had different thoughts and feelings, which I totally understand. I mean, it, it's, it's an unknown. It was an unknown for all of us. But one of the things that um, from the Lifeline staff perspective, some of the U.S. staff that were there, we immediately began meeting with our Haitian field staff and began to talk about even before the hurricane came of, okay, this is coming. And I remember they don't hear a lot of the weather forecasts like we do. And I remember I took my laptop over to this meeting with our Haitian staff and I showed them the radar view of this and it was massive and they, their eyes just got big and like, Oh my goodness, you know? And so, but we began immediately talking about how are we going to meet needs once the storm gets by? Also, how can we help people get ready for this? And I remember one of the ideas they came up with, they got a truck, they got a loudspeaker system, and they started driving around town uh, with this loudspeaker system giving the hurricane warning. That was the only way people were hearing about it. So they, some people were able to get ready and so forth. And But really, you know, Jacob, and you were there, you recall this. I mean, the only choice we had was to ride it out. I mean, we, you know, there was not anything else we could do now. You know, thankfully, uh, and especially the main building that we have there where our dining room is and so forth, <clears throat> pardon me, um, that thing, I, I don't think, any, I, I mean, the hurricane or I mean, the earthquake didn't knock it over. I mean, there, I don't know how much reinforced steel is in that building, but it's an incredible amount uh, of reinforced steel that's supporting that building. And so it was the safe place for us to be during that time. And then what I remember after her, after, and we, we just spent, we just took the team for a few days and, and we just got things ready. We went out in the clinic, we put sandbags down in the doorways. We, we did all these kind of things just to prepare for that to come. And then right after, then we had opportunities to minister again. Mm. Um, we went out to a community and took food out there to them. And it was very orderly. Our, our staff in Haiti, they organized all this. And I remember Adam, our administrator, Pastor Luke, the pastor at the Grand Gulf Church, they had everybody organized, they had their list, and the food was distributed. So it, it was a time of uncertainty. It was a time of not really knowing what kind of impact this is going to have. But I think I, I remember those things, but I think the biggest thing was the preparation and then the ministry, the preparing the minister before it came and then being ready and positioned to do ministry as soon as it was safe to do so afterwards. And um, God bless that. And I think it was a blessing to the team to be able to be a part of that. If I remember correctly, there was such a good attitude among even um, our team we had there. Mm -hmm. um, we, we knew, I mean, we knew there's no way we're just going to be able to get on a plane and go home before the hits. I, I even we think tried, we tried to make that happen and yeah. it, it wasn't going to happen. Yeah. If I remember correctly, I think they even flew all the planes out of the airport. So there wouldn't yeah, be damage to them. Planes left. Yeah. They weren't going to yeah. keep them there. Our adventures were a little different in the sense mm. that the hurricane wasn't sudden. You right. knew it was coming. You had time to prepare. Um, so that was a little different in that respect. Uh, we were able to communicate pretty mm. much, you know, uninterrupted. Uh, that time. So I was kind of following along. I knew what preparations you had made. I knew, you know, kind of what was coming. I felt, I, I knew that uh, the structures there, I wasn't concerned about, you know, them. I knew that they were strong enough to take care. So not that I wasn't concerned about key safety or anything like that, but it wasn't like a major, I just felt we've done all we, you know, you've done all you can do. Um, for that, uh, I think the biggest thing was just, as you mentioned, just um, concern for the team, uh, because that's, you know, you, you got a whole lot of different personalities and you never know how they're going to handle that. And that's a whole lot of time. I mean, you guys couldn't do anything for a long time, but just sit in that building and a whole lot of idle time can be good or it can not be. And so my biggest concern was just for Keith and dealing with the team is, you know, just praying that that would not be a negative thing, which I think it turned out uh, great. So um, I think the biggest thing was just the waiting, waiting for it to pass. Uh, it was like, a, you know, it wasn't like a sudden thing and done. It just took a long time. <laughs> Looking back at 2020. What what is some of the major hindrances that either COVID nineteen and twenty twenty had for Lifeline? Well, yeah, that, and that's a great question, and there's a lot of layers to that, and I'll, mm -hmm. I'll try to to uh, focus, get this little focused, but kind of give you a big picture. Um, you know, a year ago, uh, 
whenever that was getting into March, it, it became, it became obvious that this was going COVID I'm talking about now, this is going to be a big deal. Mm-hmm. And I know, um, you know, if people living in the United States, this is pretty much our perspective of it. And, and as we know, there's all kinds of thoughts and opinions all over the place about this. And I'm not going to get into any of that, but what we began to realize when this was named, it was officially designated as a pandemic that this is going to have an impact on every field where we are. We knew the health, we knew, we knew the living conditions everywhere. We, we know the situations, we know all of those things. And we knew this is going to be a big deal for them, for Lifeline. And uh, so, you know, we, we could see that that was coming. And so um, it became obvious very quickly that mission trips uh, are not going to be able to be a part of our equation um, on, for a lot number of different reasons and, and so on. And so um, then, of course, there's other things. I mean, it, COVID was impacting, you know, sometimes I think, oh, I think thought it was bad here, but it, it was really bad for them. Um, I think they would have been grateful to that all they would have had to done was put on a mask and not think about much of anything else. But unfortunately that was not the case for them and, and some of the restrictions and so forth that they were under. And so um, we, you know, our leadership team, we began having prayer and conversations and this was, this statement was never explicitly made by anyone, but this attitude was what I believe was started, was coming into our conversations. And that was the attitude of, okay, we know what we can't do and we can't do anything about that right now. Um, What we need to focus on is where does God want us to go with this? How does God want us to continue to minister? And so the focus began was then more of not thinking of what we can't do, but okay, what are some, what are some things that we could do to minister and to serve? And I think Jacob, even though we've, you know, it's kind of like a four-legged stool. You need all four legs to support you. And, and one, mission trips isn't even there at all, and others are impacted. But God has opened a lot of doors for us to new ministries that I, I don't think I would say that maybe we wouldn't have seen them, but I don't know that we would have seen them as quickly um, had we just been doing business as usual, so to speak. And, and I, I'll give you one example of what I'm talking about. Uh, well, two actually, and I can do it quickly. Uh, one is a, a new a new ministry now that we have that's called Container Outfitting, and um, Joel Augustus uh, on our staff, uh, he, he's vice president over our field operations. I think he was the one that first kind of got onto this idea and seen seen what was happening with this in some other places. And basically, Container Outfitting is you, you know you see these shipping containers being trucked all over the place on the interstates here is, you know, engaging churches um, to to be involved, be, get connected with a container project uh, in a particular mission field and to be able to, to outfit that. It's amazing what shipping containers, how you can outfit those for, for ministry. And I'll give you a quick example of that um, because this is a church Christy and I have been kind of connected with and getting them on board with this. It's a church in Richwood, Ohio, which is a little north of Columbus. And um, they're doing a container outfitting project for our, our mission in our ministry in Amoa in, in Honduras. And uh, where our girls' home is, children's home is there. And this is being outfitted for use as a restaurant to be used as training for some of those gals there to how to run a restaurant, how to, it goes back to that economic empowerment we were talking about earlier um, and so forth. And Christy, do I have, is it right? Some of these gals, they already have a little business. They have a little business, but this could be, you know, expanded so that they have a bigger facility, but also provide training and Mm -hmm. not only just preparing the food, but how to manage the money, how to reinvest that money and uh, business plans and that whole thing. And that'll, you know, expand not just to those girls, but eventually be open to other girls in the community or to other locations would come in and actually be able to train it. eventually expanded to more of like a vocational type school. And I think too, you know, one of the things in this too, Jacob is, I mean, it, it, you know, it's an expensive undertaking for a church to get a container and, and, you know, all the things that need to go along with that, the outfitting, all that, but 
But the way this program in ministry is designed is, and this is what Richwood in in Ohio has been doing. They're reaching out to different places like Lowe's and other businesses and, you know, getting items donated, you know, kitchen equipment donated for a restaurant, that type of thing. They've, they've gotten an incredible amount of things donated. And there, I call it a win, win, win. It's, it's three wins. It's a win for the, it's a win for the field because they're getting this container that in this case can be used for this purpose. There's other purposes that it's a whole lot less expensive than, than uh, conventional construction. It's a win uh, for the local church because because it uh, gets people in the church involved in a project that you know maybe they are not inclined to travel to the mission field but they have skills that they can that they can donate to make it happen and that mobilize hundreds of people oh yeah absolutely uh, absolutely okay. absolutely and and the second win for the church is is just the buzz it creates in their local community because they've got this container sitting on their church parking lot they got these businesses and other individuals from outside of the church that are getting involved with it. It's, it, it drums up a lot of conversation. And so a lot of that expense that you might look at at first and say, Oh, wow, that's huge. A lot of that gets whittled away through donations, through a lot of different ways. And so, so this has been a, a new opportunity that's been open to us. And, and I think it's going to continue even post pandemic. Um, that that we've been able to minister. The second thing, quickly, is is we've really stepped up our meal packs um, and so forth. Um, to where, uh, yeah, Christy and I last November we were out at um, East Side Christian Church in Anaheim, California. They had a huge meal pack there. Was that five five million or five? I don't remember. It was millions of meals. <laughs> wow, <laughs> a lot of lot of meals that were packed. Uh, it's a huge church out there, and so we've really stepped that up and. Because you, you mentioned the COVID situation, food, the need for food in all of these areas, and and we don't. Some of it, sometimes churches will ask us to pack meals for places that we don't have ministry involved with, but they have a connection with. the The, the need for food around the world it's great anyway when things are quote normal, mm-hmm. but during this pandemic, uh, it has just been a huge, huge thing. And I, I guess the one thing I would want people to understand about this too is. We are still being impacted by this, even now that we're getting into 2021. For the most part, we're not doing trips this year. And I know things here in the United States looks like we're turning the corner on some things in a more positive direction. But that is not necessarily the case in a lot of these places where we serve and where we minister. And so uh, while things here seem better, you know, we still have this great need. Uh, to to meet needs on the field. And I will say this, our field staff, they have just risen to the occasion in a huge way. Uh, I, I'll just cite Honduras very quickly. I mean, COVID concerns there have been big. We've had a lot of our staff and kids and so forth there that have had COVID and not just mild symptoms. I mean, they've it's been some significant cases of COVID that they've had to deal with. And on top of that, last fall, they had two hurricanes that came through almost one right after the other. And I'll tell you what, they have they have ministered and served. We can't get there, but they have risen to the occasion in a huge way. I can get emotional talking about it because they they have seen the needs. They not only seen the needs, but they have thought, okay, how can we meet these needs? And how can we reach out? And how can we serve? How can we minister? And they've done that. So I think that while on the surface, you could look at it and say, man, what a huge blow for Lifeline. They can't do trips. They can't do this, some of these other things. But God has opened doors of opportunity. And I think it all goes back to the attitude of let's not, we can't focus on what we can't do. Let's focus on God. What do you want us to do? Show us what that is. And then give us the strength, the courage, and the resources to walk through those doors and to serve and minister. And so, Keith and Christy, over the over the course of our interview, we have mentioned several things that Lifeline does that people here can get involved with. Um, can we just highlight one more time at least a uh, call to action, which I like to do in every podcast, on how people can be involved with some of the resources they can go to to find out more about um, how they can get involved with the mission of Lifeline? Well, obviously, I think a big way they can find out is just going to our website. Mm-hmm. And it's a simple website to remember, lifeline.org. And everything that we've talked about here today, the container outfitting, the Together program, the meal packing, all of those things and more 
are on our website. And I would just encourage people, hey, you know, if if you're feeling led by God that you want to get involved and you want to get connected and you want to help meet these needs that are so great right now, that that's a great, great resource um, for people to go to and, and to check that out. And, and I guess, you know, Jacob is a call to action. I, I would ask that people just pray for Lifeline and pray for all of the fields where we are. Um, every field where we are is still being impacted by COVID in a very significant way. And uh, we don't have time today, but there's a lot of stories we could share about some of those things and the needs and so forth that are going on there. But we just ask that you pray, pray for our field staff. We ask that you pray for Haiti because Haiti has been involved in political turmoil and unrest now for, um, it's been over two years uh, that this has been going on. We personally have not been to Haiti in over two years because of the situation there in the country. So just pray for that and pray for our field staff in Haiti. They're, you know, they're, they're laboring sometimes under some difficult circumstances, but God is still blessing and working. So I, I, I just would really encourage people and, you know, I, Jacob, I can give you my contact information. If people contact you, they can contact Christy and myself, and either we can give them what they need or point them in the right direction to do that. But we would just add, that's, I think, would be our, our, our ask today is get on, that, get on our website if you're so led to do so and, and see what opportunities there are to serve and, and to minister. And we're, we're happy to talk with people and, and point them in that direction. Right. And as always, everyone who's watching, um, in every episode, we always have in our descriptions of uh, those ways you can get involved. I'll put the links to their websites, their emails, social media, follow them on social media, keep up with what's going on in the world of Lifeline. And we've also heard several prayer requests for Lifeline. And uh, Keith and Christy, my final uh, question for you guys today is, what is a specific prayer request for you two uh, personally? Oh, personally for us? Mm-hmm. Um We talked about that yesterday. I, just, I don't know one thing. It's personal. I think um, just that we would have um, wisdom in knowing when and how to resume trips again. Um, that's a big, you know, when is that right time and, and how do we go about it? So I think that's probably a yeah. big concern that we have on our mind. Um, on a lighter note, probably just, um, you know, we're still getting settled here in Indiana uh, during a pandemic is not the best time to try to find a church or meet your neighbors. Um, so in some ways we feel kind of like we're stranded on an Island here in the middle of Indiana. So I think just uh, praying for um, just adjusting to that move. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, just to, to, to build off of what Christy said about the wisdom with teams, I, I think also to pray that we not get ahead of God in that. I mean, we're very anxious to get people back on the field. We're very anxious for us to be able to go to the field. And actually, we are going to Arizona next month. We are doing Arizona teams this year, and we are going there in June to to lead a team there. So we we do get to travel to Arizona. But um, that we just, you know, that we are patient and and not trying to get ahead of God in this, but to be and to be sensitive to our fields and our field staff of how they're feeling about bringing teams back some places they don't even have vaccines yet. So they're a little leery of people coming yet until, until they can get some people vaccinated and whatnot. So uh, just, I think that would be part of it as well. All right. Well, thank you too so much for joining me today. Um, it's been great catching up and great sharing about what's going on in the world of lifeline. And I, again, I encourage everyone to keep up with them and help support in whatever way you can. So thank you guys for joining. Thank you, Jacob. We appreciate the opportunity. Thank you.